As a minister, I'm party to a lot of conversations that go on in and around the church and questions that people have about who we are and how we do things together. So here's a question I came across recently. Are the members of the congregation, um, and there was an age given, particularly those whose movements are restricted, given the same care and consideration as the 11 to 18 category? So this was a, a question trying to um, help us think about our life together as a church family. A great question, because it encourages us to keep thinking about our older members. And particularly, you'll see those who are restricted in any way from playing their active part in the life of our community. It seems to me that one of the great strengths of Hamilton Road is that we have made substantial provision for the care of older members, whether it's elders visiting in their districts, whether it's members of the staff team visiting elderly and shut-in members when they're in hospital or in their homes, or a growing number of people on the visiting team that we're talking about uh, a little earlier in, in our announcements. It might hearten you to know that one of the conversations we're having as elders interested in the pastoral care of our members is how we might direct more care and consideration to those who need it most. If you're here this morning or maybe watching from home, if you're somebody who has restricted mobility or other issues that make it difficult for you to be an active member of our church family, and you'd like more engagement from the church family, do be in touch with us, uh, the church office or with Leslie. If on the other hand, you think you could help us to be in touch with people of that nature, people who are older or have restricted mobility, again, have a word with Leslie and we'll draw you into that kind of ministry. Before I move on from this question, let me draw your attention to another aspect of it. Uh, the question, you see, has to do not only with our older members, but also with our, our younger members. It's about how we relate to our older members and to our younger people. I, I suppose the question as a whole is how we relate to them both well. At first glance, that question might seem like a problem to be solved. The older members need support. The younger people need support. How do we make sure we give enough support? How do we keep that support in balance? It almost feels like the two are in tension, as though our generations are fighting for scarce resources. Perhaps that's how it feels in our church family. Perhaps that's how you see it. I've had this question before me as I've been grappling with our text for today, and I think God's word has much to teach us on this subject. This autumn, we're in this book of Deuteronomy. It's a record of a sermon or a series of sermons that Moses, the leader of God's people, has preached just before they enter into the promised land, just before Moses dies. 
Moses calls the people to choose life. And so far in the first six chapters, we've heard Moses call the people to choose your future, a better one than your parents chose before them. Choose your calling, showing a watching world what a great God you serve. Choose freedom. You've been set free, now stay free. Choose love. Love God with all that you are and all that you have. And three weeks ago on our Harvest Sunday, we jumped out of sequence a little bit, out of the first six chapters, away over to chapter 24. And we noticed there in God's word a call to choose generosity. If I had more time this morning, I'd tell you about some really exciting things that I've heard people doing in response to that part of God's word. This morning, as we look at these verses we've read in Deuteronomy 6, we're going to think about how we might choose life for our children. We're going to think about choosing life at home, choosing life-giving conversations, and choosing life as a church family. So first of all, choosing life at home. You have the passage open there before you. Maybe you picked up on this as we were reading it. In verses 7 to 9 of chapter 6, Moses is calling the people to bring God's law really close into their everyday lives. Uh, We might say into their domestic setting. When Moses raises this issue of choosing life in verse 7, he encourages the people to impress God's commandments on your children. And he paints a picture, doesn't he? It's a beautiful picture of parents who talk to their children at the dinner table and on the school run. A home where the first words in the morning encourage everyone in the family to live for Jesus. And the last words that a child hears in the evening are their their reading from their children's Bible and prayers about their schoolwork and their friends. This home that Moses has in mind is a place where where God's word, where the scriptures are woven right into the fabric of the building. Look at verse 9. Write God's commands on the door frames of your homes. Orthodox Jewish families throughout history have taken this very literally, taken it to heart. So they've used mezuzot, that's tiny little scrolls with these verses written on them, and they've placed them in cases and fixed them to their doorposts. They have put Deuteronomy 6 right into practice. It's not just Jewish communities who have chosen to reflect God's word in the fabric of their houses. I love the half-timbered houses that you find in so many of Germany's towns and villages. There's a, a tradition in many of these communities to paint Bible verses over the front door of your house. Here's a photograph from a village near where my mum grew up. You can see there the gilted writing above the front door. You, You won't be able to make it out. It's Romans 12, verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Isn't that a great thing to have above your front door? To see day by day, year by year, decade by decade, and in the case of these houses, century by century. 
In case we think this is all far-flung and only happens in, in other places or at other times in history, just this week I was visiting with a, a Hamilton Road family who are going through a lot of change, uh, and they were telling me about that. They were talking about how they were, were trusting God with that. But they told me about a lot of comfort that they were finding in Bible verse posters that they had up around their house. And particularly, they mentioned one verse, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The word of God woven into the very fabric of our homes. Many of us have had the privilege of growing up in that kind of a home. Many of us are trying to create just now that kind of an environment for our children. We're talking here about choosing life for our children. We're talking about creating homes and families where the word of God is woven into the very fabric of life. How are you doing that? Perhaps that's a good question, a simple question you could take home from this study of God's word this morning. Even as I invite you to do that, let me offer you a, a piece of advice or a word of caution. Be careful with how you do this. Don't be overbearing. Uh, be careful, particularly as your children grow older. Don't let the blessing of growing up in a Christian household become an oppressive curse for your family. Something that your teenagers and young adults feel they need to escape. I'm reminded at this point of an interview I heard with Tim Keller a number of years ago. It, he, he was asked, uh, he and his wife were being interviewed about how they had gone about discipling their children in their household. Um, and, and he told us of a, about a conversation that he'd had with his sons when they were grown up and when they'd left the home. He asked them, what's the one best thing that mom and I ever did to help you uh, to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. They sat, they thought for a moment, and one of them answered, putting an end to the family devotions. The family devotions were beautiful. They were important. But there came a time when that way of relating with their children had to change, and maybe Tim and Kathy Keller missed that moment. There's something important to notice and reflect on here. At some point as our children grow, we need to move from impressing or pressing things onto them. There comes a time when we shouldn't anymore be telling our children stuff at the dinner table or browbeating them in the teenage taxi. That doesn't make sense of how young people develop and grow. That won't generally help our young people to want to live for Jesus. We need to move on from telling our kids what they need to know to choosing life-giving conversations with our children and young adults. That's our second area that we want to think about this morning. Look at verses 20 to 25. We, we jump from the opening verses to the closing verses of the chapter. I don't know if this is intentional in how this chapter has been recorded and handed to us, 
I didn't read this in a commentary, but it feels to me like we've moved on at this point. We've moved on from impressing things on smaller children. As their children grow older, they question things. Look at verse 20. Moses asks us to anticipate a future when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Any parent of teenagers will tell you that Moses is spot on here. The children who used to listen to us and take our word for it are now the ones who ask the questions. Why do we obey these laws? Why do we read the Bible? Why does our family go to church? Why does this family believe in God anyway? What's this all about? I can almost feel the stress levels in myself and other parents of teenagers rising. Our everyday reality. These are the kinds of conversations we're having at home or the kinds of conversations we're dreading having in a few years time at home what do we say when our kids start asking these questions well moses i think gives us a wonderful steer two things i want you to notice he tells us how we might share life with our young people first says moses to share with your growing son or daughter who's questioning this faith, tell them how God saved you. It, when Moses was speaking to the Israelites, he, he was inviting them to tell their kids about the Exodus, that moment when God had, had rescued them, brought them out of slavery in Egypt, when he brought them to the promised land. Remind them, says Moses, that he has saved us. Long before we ever tried to keep his commands, to live for him, before we even had his laws, he saved us. He saved us because of his grace. Tell me this. What stories are you telling your kids and your grandkids about God's saving work in your life? Have they heard your testimony? I love that we're growing as a storytelling community here in Hamilton Road these days. At least, at least I'm seeing it. Last week at Connect, the group that meets here during the church service, Billy and Sheila Steele went out to meet with our younger teenagers to tell them about God's grace in their lives. This autumn, our older teenagers have been hearing stories of saving God's saving work in Unite Every week, a different leader has been sharing their testimony, telling them about how God has saved them. Last week, our, our kids came home so excited because they'd heard of God's saving work in the life of Alan and Leela Kirshmar. First thing, says Moses, tell them how God saved you. But don't leave it there, says Moses. Don't just talk to them about how you've been saved in the past. Talk about how God is giving you life in the present. Look at verses 24 and 25. Tell your kids, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees, to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. It's not enough to talk to our kids about how we gave our life to Jesus when we were a child or a teenager. 
We need to show our children and our young people that God is giving us life today. They need to see that we love him and that we're satisfied finally only in him. They need to see that we're thankful to him in the good times and that we rely on him in the bad. Claire and I are not model parents. If my kids were here at the microphone, they would be very quick to tell you that. Far from it. But we do try to talk to our kids about the lives that we lived. How God has been with us and how he is with us. In recent times, it, it, it just tracks what's really going on in life. In recent times, we've had conversations around the dinner table about the cost of living crisis and what it means to trust God with our finances. That openness about our lives leaves our kids, we discover, open to talk about theirs, about their exams and their friendships, about leaving home and going to university. At this stage in our lives, it's not, it's not often about structured Bible studies and family prayer. It's about normal, everyday conversations and showing, demonstrating that God is the center of this family. Friends, I've, like all of us, been learning a lot about domestic discipleship on the job. Nearly two decades now, Claire and I have been making our mistakes and hopefully learning something. We've been trying to, to raise our kids and we've had the privilege of journeying with other families too. Let, let me offer one reflection. I think we sometimes overestimate what our intentional, structured discipling efforts do in the lives of our children. We overestimate those and we underestimate the discipling that's going on all the time, naturally, that we don't even see. I, I hope you can see that distinction that I'm making. Let me, let me, let me help with a quote from T.S. Eliot. I read this a, a number of years ago and it, it stopped me in my tracks thinking about Christian discipleship in the home. Eliot once said, it's not what's taught in a house that matters. It's what's taken for granted there that shapes us. You see, I might be a Christian parent who teaches my kids all the right things, but then lives in all the wrong ways. And this is where they're likely to end up. You see, I've reached a stage in my life where I'm seeing this more and more. I've, I've grown through a few stages. It's the advantage of being now in my 50s. Had my flu jab this week. Winter ready. I've grown through the teenage stage of knowing that my parents were the stupidest people on the planet. I'm, I'm, I've come through that. I've come through the young adult stage of thinking, I'm smarter than my parents. I'm going to do it so much better. And I'm at the stage where I'm realizing 
wait a minute. I am my parents. I've turned into them. The truth is, we all turn out far more like our parents than we ever thought we would. Realizing that and accepting it will make a huge impact on how you try to disciple your kids for Jesus Christ. More important than what you tell your children to do is what you do and who you are. The best thing I can offer my children and young people isn't finally the best, most orthodox teaching about Jesus Christ. It's a life on fire with love for Jesus Christ that's at least sometimes resembling his life. So choose life in your home. Choose life-giving conversations. We're going to spend our last few moments about how we can choose life as a church family. We're going to lift our conversation about discipling our children and our, and our young people out of the, the domestic setting and bring it here, right into this, this gathering, this place here, our church family. Every one of us, regardless of our biological family status, and I need you to hear me, I'm not, I'm not talking to people who have children here, I'm talking to every one of us. Every one of us is called to make disciples of Jesus Christ to disciple those who come after us. Did you, did you know that? Do you own that yet? You, if you're in Christ, you're here to disciple other people who follow in your footsteps. Don't worry if you didn't know that. But let's start to own it today. The Old Testament is full of disciples. Disciple sounds like a New Testament word. It sounds like something we... We only saw when Jesus arrived on the scene. The truth is, Jesus did what he did because of everything that had gone before. Think of the disciples, the people in the Old Testament who apprenticed people into the life of God that they were living. Maybe you're thinking of some of the more obvious cases. Moses, who, who, who we're studying here in Deuteronomy, he had his Joshua. Eli in the temple, he discipled young Samuel. Elijah, he passed on his mantle, literally, to, to Elisha. But what about the less obvious cases? Moses discipled also Caleb. Samuel, the prophet, he discipled a young King Saul. Naomi, who we were thinking about a few weeks ago, discipled Ruth, her young daughter-in-law, whom she brought back home with her to Bethlehem, discipled her in the ways of the God of Israel. Folks, with that kind of a heritage, it's no surprise to find that the New Testament church follows the, the same pattern. We know Paul as a, as a great missionary and as a church planter, but Paul was a discipler. He discipled lots of people, but he's most famous for the discipling relationships he had with his assistant ministers, I, I call them, Timothy and Titus. So the whole history of the people of God in the Old Testament and the whole future 
of the church in the New Testament hinges on Jesus Christ. What do you know about Jesus' work? Do you have any idea how he went about his business, what he did? He didn't do what the modern church leader is inclined to do. He didn't set his heart on preaching to a huge crowd so that he could build a mega church. He gathered 12 men, 12 young men, so he could make them into a community around him. The disciples were young. Did you know that? In Jewish tradition, a young man started to follow a rabbi usually between the age of 12 and 30 but mostly before they were 20. So that would make most of the apostles, most of the disciples that we know from the stories of scripture, they were teenagers or young adults at most. Jesus Christ was a youth worker. Did you know that? Every person called to Jesus Christ is a discipler of children and young people. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he got this better than most. Luther once asked the question, for what purpose do we older people exist than to care for, instruct, and to bring up the young? Folks, I'm going to say, in my experience, it's rare to find a church that really gets this. Perhaps you'd allow me to share the story of a church that I know very well that did get this. They got this spectacularly right. I'm thinking of Kirkpatrick Memorial in East Belfast. In the summer of 2003, that church was ready for closing. They got a final reprieve and were given an opportunity to try and call a new minister. Their numbers in that congregation were not right. There were too few of them, and the few people that there were had had far too many birthdays. That's how they described their numerical status to me. Too few of them with too many birthdays. I first met the elders of that church when I went to be interviewed by them. Uh, with the possibility of becoming their new minister. The elders sat in a row, relatively small room, not, not very many of them, maybe, maybe a, about a dozen. They were all retired except for one. One person was still going to work in his 60s. We had a great time together. And then we got to the end of the interview, and there was that bit, if you've been interviewed in your lifetime or recently, you'll maybe remember this. Sometimes there's a moment where the chairman says, well, has anybody got a, a last question or a last comment they want to make? So one of the elders asked if they could make a comment. And he, he just looked along the row of the other elders sitting beside him. And he, he looked at me and he said, look at us. We are old. I thought to myself, you are not lying, brother. They, these were not young church leaders. Look at us. We're old. We don't have long left. But we believe that God's given us one last chance. 
and we want to use it to reach the next generation for Jesus Christ. Will you come and help us? That's what they said. And 20 years later, it still moves me to think about it. And what they did when I, I did come to be their minister, they promised that they would support me in, in that task. Lots of Kirk Sessions promised lots of ministers lots of things at interviews. These guys did it. They did what they promised. They gave their last years to welcoming, praying for, and discipling the young. I'm thinking of Stanley. He worked those pews until his legs couldn't carry him anymore. Going to shake hands, to welcome, to greet people, and welcome them into his church family. I'm thinking of Morris and Ida. These guys are in their 70s. Every Friday night, they have a different group of people in their home for dinner. People in their 20s and 30s, to have them in their home for dinner and a table quiz. Morris designed a table quiz. Probably spent his week getting the questions ready. Brilliant. This church began to fill up then with with young adults and with families, with children and teenagers. And within a few years, it was unrecognizable. So I remember people from the outside asking me about that. They said, how did that go? How do the older people respond to this dramatic change in their church? They loved it. They absolutely loved it. Because they prayed for 25 years that God would do something in their dying little church. God had given them one last chance and they had taken it. They thought they'd died and gone to heaven and by now, some of them had. And I picture them receiving a greeting there. Well done, good and faithful servant. You chose to choose life for your children. Folks, we began this morning with an important question. Are the senior members of this congregation, and particularly those whose movements are restricted, given the same care and consideration as the 11 to 18-year-olds? As I've studied God's word this week, and as I've reflected on what this might mean in my life, I've realized that I want to be asking a slightly different question. Here's the question I'm already asking and want to ask for as long as God gives me breath. How can I, as I grow older and while I'm still able, bless and disciple younger people in my family and in my church family? Or Put it in terms that we're familiar with from Deuteronomy. How can I use the life that's left to me to choose life for our children? Let's pray. Lord, we've seen in your word 
mostly in Deuteronomy, but also in other places, your call on us to consider those who are younger than us, to make passing on the life that you've given us, the salvation that we've found in Jesus, to make that the goal of our lives. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to hear your word and to start thinking about how we can put this into practice. Lord, we pray for generations of children and young people and young adults who will grow up in this place grateful to you because we who are older taught them about Jesus. We pray it in his name for his glory.